Now, before we read our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 4, uh, we're going to start in verse 23, but I, I want to uh, ask you a question, and I, it's a rhetorical question, and what that means is that you don't answer it out loud, okay, just sort of hold it there in, in your thoughts, but what, what, I want to ask you this question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We talk a lot about the gospel, we talk a lot about Jesus, but what is that Message, when you think of the gospel, of course, the, the word gospel literally means good news. When you think about the good news, what comes to your mind? If someone asked you, what is the gospel, what would you tell them? So I want you to just hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. We're going to see how that lines up with what Jesus is teaching and, and preaching here in this passage. So... Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, that's preaching, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. This is our passage here uh, this morning. So, Father, we just thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, help us to, to see what it is you want us to see, to hear what it is you want us to hear Lord, help us uh, to uh, live as citizens of, of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of kings and that you are the Lord of lords and that you are right now seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning. Lord, help us to live uh, in that light and help our time this morning to shed light on that truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it says that he's going around Galilee. Galilee was a region populated by about 200 small towns and villages. These villages were anywhere from a couple hundred people to about 1,500 people. So nothing huge, nothing major, not some huge cities, but very small and very rural region. But it says as, as he ministers there that the word begins to go out because of the, the things that he is teaching, the things that he is preaching. And then thirdly, he is healing. And so his ministry encompasses three things, teaching, preaching, and healing. And because of the things he's teaching and the things that he's preaching and the works that he is doing, his fame begins to spread even beyond that region, even beyond Israel, out into the Gentile regions. It tells us even some of them, such as Syria. And so here, uh, th this fame of Jesus is, is going out and, and people are coming. Crowds are now being drawn. Even though it's not a very populated and densely populated region, there are people coming from all of these little towns to come and to hear and to see Jesus. And again, three things it says here, teaching, preaching, proclaiming, and healing. I want to focus first here on the healing, the healing that Jesus is doing. The ministry of Jesus we see is a combination of meeting the physical needs of the people who are suffering as well as the spiritual needs. 
It's a ministry of not just soul, but also of the body. And he, he's ministering to their physical needs. We'll read later in Matthew's gospel as, as Jesus even feeds the multitudes. And what we see by him healing these, these, those that are sick and those that uh, are, are lame and, and those that are afflicted and those that are oppressed and, and those that are diseased, what we see is him putting on display his unmatched and unrivaled and universal power as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is putting that on display. We see here that it mentions several times in the passage that he healed all who were brought to him, all of the sick. Imagine what kind of a spectacle that would create where everyone who was sick brought to him goes away well. And they begin to go and to tell, there, there's someone who can heal the sick. Get your aunt, get your uncle, get, get your son, get your daughter, get your mother. Get them to this man. He's healing everybody. The crowds begin to come. This is why uh, also that because the, the ministry of Christ is a ministry to body and soul, this is why historically wherever the gospel goes, hospitals are built. Wherever the, wherever the gospel goes, places to take care of the sick and the needy and the poor start to spring up. Did you know hospitals are a Christian idea? Amen. Distinctly Christian. If it weren't for Christ, there would be no hospitals. It's, it's, it stands in antithesis to the way of the world. You know, Darwinism says it's survival of the fittest. It's kill or be killed. But the ministry of Christ is the exact opposite. It's ministering to the weak, to the hurting, to the sick, having compassion upon them. A ministry of compassion. What we need to be very careful of in our day as God's people that live in a very uh, interesting time is that we don't become hardened in our hearts to the, the need of people, to, to, the, to, the, to the hurting people around us. God's people are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And so I, I understand that we, we live in a world that is, is dominated by narratives and, and dominated oftentimes by politics. But listen, friends, we can't allow those things to harden our hearts to the needs of humanity, to the needs of the image bearers of God that are all around us. The world would love to divide people and to pit groups against one another. Jesus didn't stop and say, those of you from Syria, no, I'm sorry, you, 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 you're not available to, to, to receive my healing. No, it says that he ministered to everyone who came to him. What this tells me is that we should be willing to love, to serve, to bless everyone we come in contact with, no matter where they come from, if we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, if we're going to show the love of Christ. So, so let us not get up, caught up in a political narrative that would try to harden our hearts against certain groups and, and, and demographics of people. Amen. 
Darwinism, survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. That's the way of the world. The way of Christ is reaching down to the lowest, to the, the, to the hurting, to the broken. That's where he found us. Amen? And so this question sometimes arises as, and maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, you're hurting. Maybe you're here this morning, you're broken. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in need. Sometimes the question arises, and I felt this way at times before, does God care? Does God care about my, what I'm going through? Does God, does he see me? God, do you see the pain? Have you ever felt that way? God, are, are you there? Have you ever felt that way? I want you to know God cares. God sees. In fact, one of the names of God from the Old Testament is El Roy, the God who sees. God does see. God does care. As we, as we see the ministry of Jesus here and moving through the rest of this gospel, we're going to see that Jesus knows what we need even before we ask it. That God is not some detached, impersonal force out there. That God is not just gallivanting across the universe. That his eye is on the sparrow, God even says. That he sees even when the sparrows fall. That not one sparrow falls without him taking notice. And Jesus says, if God so sees the sparrows, how much more does he see us? His children created in his image. No, God is not some impersonal force. God is not some detached person that doesn't see. He's not indifferent. He is compassionate. God is not the God of what's called generic deism. That, that he sort of wound up the universe like a clockmaker and then sort of checked out and is letting things just run its course. No, God is intimately involved in the life of his creation. And he is intimately involved in the details of your life as well. That God is omnipresent everywhere all the time. That he's also omni, uh, uh, omniscient, that he knows all things and that he sees all things. But I would submit to you that he's even more than omnipresent. Because the Bible says that in him all things hold together. That he's not just everywhere all the time. He's holding everything together all the time. That in him we live and move and have our being. That literally Christ permeates every fiber of the universe. Does God see? Yes, God sees. Does God care? Yes, God cares. Is God close to the brokenhearted? Yes, he is. He's closer than we could ever even know. The Bible says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and Jesus Christ is that friend. The Bible says that he will never leave us or forsake us. Does God see? Yes, God sees. Does God care? Yes, he cares. God's heart is moved by our afflictions and our infirmities. Jesus says, come to me all who are weak, and heavy laden, those who are burdened down with life. And he says, and I will give you rest. If you are weak, if you are tired, if you need healing today, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He, he is the only one who will provide rest for your soul. 
He is the only one who can provide healing for your body. He is the only one who can provide healing for your soul and for your heart and for your mind. It is only Jesus. And his heart is moved by our afflictions. To cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Amen. So, his healing ministry, we see it here. It also says that he had a teaching and a preaching ministry. He went about teaching in their synagogues. That was their, their, their religious communities in, in those days. The, the Jewish people had these uh, like churches. They were like a church where they would gather together they would sing, they would open up the Old Testament scriptures, but they were communities. They were people who were known by one another. These synagogues, he would travel around as a teacher and teach in them. And then out in the, 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 the public square, and out in public, he would proclaim. And he would proclaim, it says, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, I began today by asking you, what is the gospel? You remember that? That was the beginning, just a few minutes ago. What is the gospel? I asked you to, to think about it, to hold that thought in your mind. And I think probably most of us would have said something like this, that Jesus is the Son of God, come into the world, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he took our sins upon him, and that by believing upon him and his life and his death and his resurrection, that we too can have eternal life. Amen. How many of you probably thought something along those lines? It's not a trick question. I know sometimes I offer trick questions. It's not one of those. This is an absolutely true statement. Amen. Without a doubt. Jesus is the Son of God come into the world who died on the cross for our sins, rose again to give us eternal life, and that all who believe in him will be saved, will have their sins forgiven, will be made right with God. Yes and amen. amen. But is this what Jesus is teaching and preaching? Now I would submit to you that his teaching and preaching would encompass that idea, but at this point in his ministry, it can't be what he's teaching and preaching. He can't be talking about his sinless life because he's still living it. He can't be talking about his death and resurrection. He hasn't died and rose again yet. In fact, later on in the Gospels, as he gets closer to the cross... He'll begin to, to talk about, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. I'm going to go, I'm going to die and rise again. Remember, Peter rebukes him. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. So when Jesus eventually gets to talking about his death and resurrection, people don't want to hear it. And in fact, in John chapter 6, when Jesus starts talking about the cross and and his blood and his flesh being offered up as a sacrifice, it says that all the crowds who were following him that we see here now, when he starts talking about that, they all leave. They all take off. And, and it gets all the way down to the only people who are left is his 12 disciples, and he turns to them, he says, are you going to leave me too? 
So Jesus here is not talking about his sinless life. He's not talking about his death and resurrection. So what is this that he is teaching and preaching? It says he's talking about the gospel. The gospel. What what is it that he's teaching and preaching? Well, it says he's teaching and preaching about the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. And what we have done, and hear me in this, the gospel of the kingdom encompasses what we would think of as the gospel, that, that, that gospel message, the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. But it's much bigger than that. The, the gospel is much bigger than simply Believe on Jesus for your personal salvation. And what we have done, and at times I have been guilty of this as well, is we have reduced the gospel down to how to enter into the kingdom. We've, We've shrunken the message. The message is actually much bigger. The message is actually much larger than simply how that you can have personal salvation. Now that's important, amen? But if we reduce the gospel, what we end up also doing is reducing its impact in the world. And I would submit to you that we live in a nation that used to understand the gospel of the kingdom but, in, but now only understands the gospel of personal salvation. And in so doing, we have reduced the effect of the gospel of the kingdom in our world. Because if you have a shrunken gospel, you have a shrunken impact. Jesus is not preaching the gospel of personal salvation. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so I want to talk to you uh, in the few moments that we have left this morning about the kingdom of God. And I have 12 points for you, okay? 12 points. We're going to blaze through these, okay? You notice I have a PowerPoint today, okay? It's because we're going to go really, really, really fast on these 12 points. I started out with like five, and then I had eight, and then I had 10, and last night I was looking at my notes, I'm like, oh, there's two more, so by the grace of God, we'll, we'll make it through uh, this, this morning. The first is, okay, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. The, the place where God rules and the place where God reigns. And this is what Jesus was preaching. This is what Jesus was proclaiming. And and you'll recall that this was also what John the Baptist was preaching and proclaiming. Remember? What was John the Baptist's message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Jesus comes and he, he repeats the same thing. Repent, turn back to God because his kingdom is here. His kingdom is at hand. The, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. I have, I have one scripture here. I, let, let's just flip over to Psalm 96. We, we're not going to be able to do this with all the scriptures that I have up there. I'm going to be putting a, a ton of references up there for you. 
uh, just in case uh, you want to go and, and read further, Psalm 96, verse 10, it says, Say among the nations, say among the nations what? The Lord reigns. Say among the nations that the, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world, it is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Therefore, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roll and roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Let the, let the trees of the forest sing for joy. For the Lord comes and he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let the earth rejoice because God reigns. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. The second is that the kingdom of God is the dominant theme of the entire Bible. I would love to walk with you through Genesis into Exodus into Leviticus and from, from Genesis to Revelation this morning. We could go all the way until midnight tonight like the Apostle Paul and some of you would undoubtedly fall asleep like Eutychus and thankfully we don't have any windows to fall out of here in the building. We could do that this morning. That is the theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God is the dominant theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 1-1 declares that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God owns everything. God owns every atom in the universe. Belongs to him. He is completely and totally sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1.1 says that, uh, that he is doing according everything according to the counsel of his will. That he is working out everything according to his plan. History is not the, the, the cascading of time over meaningless and purposeless events. No, in fact, history is his story. The story that he is telling in the earth and in the universe. The universe belongs to God. As the, the Old Testament unfolds, God makes a promise to David, one of the kings of Israel, that a descendant would come and to sit upon David's throne. And we've been looking at this through the, the beginning of the few, first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. In fact, the, the Matthew's gospel opens by saying the book of the Genesis or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That there would be a descendant who would come, a king who would come and establish a kingdom who would rule and reign and that his rule and reign would be without end. And then as, as the kings of Israel continued to come, and, and continued to proceed, all of them failed, all of them sinned, all of them were imperfect. None of them lived up to the, the promise that God had made to David. But the message of the New Testament, the message of, of the gospel is that Jesus is that king. God began to send prophets who, who were going to his people 
began to speak about who this king would be and, and what this kingdom would look like. Isaiah 9, 6, we, we know this well because it's on all of our Christmas cards. But this is more than something invented by Hallmark to sell cards. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Oh, how sweet. Oh, how precious. Oh, little baby Jesus in a manger. And all the little sheep and all the little camels. And we think about little kids dressed up in angel costumes. And it just warms our heart and gives us the fuzzies. Right? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Next line. And the government. How many of you, as soon as I say that word government, all of those warm fuzzies go away? It's not, it's not, you know, Christmas spirit anymore. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Unfortunately, most of us, that's where our, our knowledge of this verse stops. But verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, from the time that Christ the King comes into the world, from this time forth, and forevermore. And then he goes on to say that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Of the increase of his government and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Amen. The dominant theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of of God. Not only is it the dominant theme of all of Scripture, but it be becomes, number three, very clearly the, the dominant theme of the Lord Jesus and his apostles. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, it talks about the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, nearly 40 times alone is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven mentioned. Go with me to the book of Acts quickly. I, I just want to show you, we, we don't have time to look at all of those references. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church, the birth of the church. I, I would like to look at all of those this morning, but we're going to look at two specifically, the first and the last. I want to show you that the book of Acts begins with the kingdom of God and the book of Acts ends with the kingdom of God as the dominant theme This is talking about after Jesus, after he rose again, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that he presented himself alive to his apostles, his disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God. So after the resurrection, Christ meets with his disciples for 40 days. 
And what is the theme? What is the message? What is it that he is teaching them about? How to have a personal salvation experience? How to make Jesus the Lord of your life? It's much bigger than that. He's talking about the rule and the reign of God, the kingdom of God. This is the message. This is the, the dominant theme. This is what uh, Jesus here is talking about and teaching his disciples about and training his disciples in. So that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit falls and Peter stands up to preach, what he says is that the kingdom of the Messiah has been inaugurated. That Jesus is on the throne in heaven. The throne that was promised to David. That Jesus sits on it right now. And that he has all the power in heaven and on earth. And that now he has poured out his spirit on the earth. That is the message. It's the message that Peter stands up and preaches. It's the message that Jesus had been communicating and discipling his apostles in for 40 days. The rule and the reign of God. Now flip with me all the way to the end of Acts. Acts chapter 28. Paul now here in prison in Rome. He's waiting his trial. Verse 30, it says he lived there for two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God is not only the dominant theme of the Bible, it's the dominant theme of the apostles and of Jesus himself. In the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord over 650 times. Every time Jesus' lordship is asserted, it's talking about the kingdom of God. We just simply read it and think it's just like his name, like his middle name, you know, Jesus Christ the Lord or something. It's just like... No, 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 no. It's his title. It's speaking of, of his rule and his reign every time the word Lord is mentioned in the New Testament over 16, uh, 650 times. Now, this was a radical, radical assertion in the first century because the dominant theme throughout the Roman Empire was different. In fact, it was even stamped on their currency. You know how you look at our currency and what does it say? In God we trust. On their currency, it had the head of Caesar and it declared Caesar is Lord. And here comes along this band of followers of Jesus declaring, actually, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Over 650 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord. Every time it says Lord, it's talking about the kingdom, the rule, and the reign of God. Number four, this is important if you've uh, zoned out, uh, zoned back in here. If, you, if you're checking your fantasy football, check, check back in here for a second. Number four, the kingdom of God is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not of this world. 
Now, we need to understand what this means, so flip over to John 18. This is from Jesus' own lips. Jesus is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, standing before uh, what represents the greatest power and the greatest authority on the world at that time. And in John chapter 18, he, he gets into this dialogue with Pilate. And so Pilate asked Jesus, he's on trial, he's about to be crucified. He was delivered by the, the Jewish leaders to Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did someone say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And then Jesus here qualifies, he quantifies what he means by that. He, he, he gives an illustration of what that looks like. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate said to him, you, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now Jesus here gives this example. He says, if, if, if my kingdom was of this world, if my kingdom was from this world, my servants would be fighting. My servants would be taking up the sword so that I'm not being put on trial right now. You remember that Peter tried to do that. Remember Peter got his sword out and lopped off somebody's ear and Jesus said, come on, Peter. And he picked it up and slapped it back on the guy's head. He said, put your sword away. What's the point? That the kingdom of God does not advance through worldly means. The kingdom of God is not advanced through military might. The kingdom of God is not conversion by the sword of the flesh. But the kingdom has been given a sword. Amen. The sword of the spirit. That the kingdom of God is advanced through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he means by saying that his kingdom is not from this world or of this world. It's not of earthly origin. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. It's not like Rome. It's not like Greece. It's not like Persia. It's not like the Assyrians. It's not like the Egyptians. It's not like the Babylonians that advance their kingdoms through military might and through bloodshed. No, in fact... The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Christ advances through gospel preaching and God's people laying down their lives. The evangelistic strategy, I've heard it put this way, the evangelistic strategy of the first three centuries was preaching the gospel and being eaten by lions. That was their strategy. That, that was it. We're going to, Jesus is Lord. We're not going to bow the knee to Caesar. You can, you can beat us. You can persecute us. You can chase us from town to town. 
You can burn us at the stake. You can have us eaten by lions. Jesus is Lord. That was their strategy. To proclaim the lordship of Christ over every kingdom, over every ruler, over every sphere, over every government. Jesus is Lord. What point am I on here? Not of this world. It's not like the world. The kingdom of God is not like the world's kingdom. It is an upside down kingdom to our natural thinking that has been affected by sin. But truly the kingdom of God is right side up. So to people who are truly upside down, it looks upside down to us, but really it's right side up. So, for example, Jesus will say things like, in my kingdom, the way up is down. The greatest among you must be what? The servant of all. Jesus will say things like Matthew 10, 39. To find your life, you must what? Lose it. That it's an upside down. It's not like the world's kingdoms. It doesn't originate in the world and of the flesh. It originates in heaven. Jesus brought the kingdom from heaven. But this leads us to a very important point in point number five. Though the kingdom is not of this world, the kingdom of God is in this world. The kingdom of God is in this world. John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus going out preaching and teaching what? The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Though the kingdom is not of this world, the kingdom absolutely is in the world. John chapter 12, flip over with me quickly. I'm going to prove it to you that the kingdom is in the world today, now, right now, as we speak. John chapter 12. No, not John, Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12 and verse 28. Jesus is preaching, he's teaching, and then he begins to cast out demons. And the religious rulers see this and they say, he's casting out demons by the spirit of Satan. But what does Jesus say? Verse 27, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom your sons cast them out, therefore they will be your judges. But, verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and can we agree that it was? Can we agree that Jesus wasn't a false prophet, that he wasn't an antichrist, that, that he is the Messiah? So he's, he's doing the work by the Spirit of God. He says, if, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then... All the computer programmers will love this. If then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God in the world in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of God is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not from this world. But yes, the kingdom of God is in this world today. Today. Matthew 28, 12, 28 is so explicitly clear. If then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Number six, the kingdom of God started small. 
but it ends big. The kingdom of God starts small, but it ends big. Matthew 13, the very next chapter, verse 31, Jesus gives two parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. How many of you have ever held a mustard seed? It's very small. It's very tiny. That, that from that small seed grows forth this, this huge tree. Uh, me and my, my kids especially are trying to grow an oak tree from an acorn. It's a project we're working on right now. It's a lot harder than it looks. You know, every single oak tree that you see started as a little tiny acorn. A little tiny acorn. But it grows and it grows and it grows. Now, if you walk outside, you look at the oak trees that we have, beautiful oak trees. Can you sit there and watch it grow? As my kids are trying to do with... We can't even get the little squiggle thing to pop out. We're, we're really struggling. Can you sit there and watch it grow? As No, it's, it's literally imperceivable. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. That it starts small, almost imperceivable, but that it grows and it grows and it grows. Number 30, uh, verse 33, he gives another illustration in the same vein. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Just a tiny little bit, just a tiny little pinch. A huge lump of dough takes just the smallest amount of leaven, but it fills and it permeates the entire loaf. In Daniel chapter 2, we read about this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. He dreams of, of this statue that represents the kingdoms of the world. And then in that dream, a, a rock without, cut out of a mountain without hands comes and, and crushes that statue, destroying those kingdoms. And then that small rock grows into a mountain that what? Fills the whole earth. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not drop out of heaven all at once like some invading military force. The kingdom of God is not like shock and awe over Baghdad. The kingdom of God doesn't come like a blitzkrieg. It starts so small, almost imperceptible, obscure. Think about it. We're about to head into Christmas season. How did, how, how did the kingdom of God enter into the world? Through a little baby born in a manger to poor peasant parents that no one had ever heard of. Could, could not have started more insignificantly. That they were so poor and so insignificant that they couldn't even get a hotel room. That no one would even 
give the, the hotel that they had to a pregnant woman in labor. That's how low on the totem pole they were. That's, that's how dark the world that Christ was born into. But even our Christmas carols sing of the kingdom of God. As we hear the Christmas carols this year, I want you to be thinking of these. Talking about the rule and the reign of Christ, the rule and the reign of God. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive their king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. That's that third verse of that song. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Even our songs of, of the birth of Christ are talking and singing about the kingdom of God and his rule and reign over the earth. Amen. It starts small almost imperceptible. But over the last 2,000 years, the kingdom of God is growing in the earth. And just as Daniel interpreted that dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, that in the days of those kings, in the days of the Roman Empire, that God himself would set up a kingdom that would not be able to be shaken, that not, would not be able to be toppled. And you and I, if we believe in Christ, we live as citizens of that kingdom. Yes. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom without end. I'm going to save the next six for next week. They're too good. They're too good to just, to just run through. I... I I really want to spend my time on them, so you'll have to come back next week. But Jesus here is not just preaching the gospel of personal salvation. He's preaching the gospel about the rule and the reign of God. This was his dominant theme. The, the, the kingdom, as we'll see next week, as we start unfolding this. It starts talking about the, the personal implications of the kingdom of God in our own life. We need to know that Christ is king today. Amen. Amen. That the kingdom was inaugurated 2,000 years ago. That Christ ascended, rose victorious, ascended into heaven, was seated at the right hand of God, and that he rules and reigns from heaven over the nations of the earth today. And so you and I need to take heart as though we live in a world that is shaken and can be shaken and that at times seems like things are melting down around us. We need to, to, to steady our hearts with the words of Christ that said, in the world we will have tribulation." but that we can take heart because he has overcome the world. And he is our king, and we are part of his kingdom. 
a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that lives under his rule and experiences his blessing. And so we can expect and anticipate as we live as citizens of the kingdom of God to experience the blessing of God in every area of our lives. Amen. I invite you to stand with me this morning. I invite the worship team to come. We're going to conclude today by taking the Lord's Supper. While they're coming, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the truth, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we meditate on these great truths about your kingdom uh, today and even into this week, I, I pray that you would... Help us to, to see the truth that, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That, that these are not just songs we sing, but, but that this is the reality of the universe. And that we would see your rule and your reign grow and expand from sea to sea and from shore to shore. And from family to family, from house to house in our community. We thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.